but um, God has his hand on them, and he knew who would be here today. Amen. Uh, taking us away from that series and preaching uh, just a, a thought in line with Resurrection Sunday with Easter and um, preaching under the title of the price of satisfaction. The price of satisfaction. And um, when I was a kid, my on my mom's side of the family, we had uh, quite a considerable family. It was very large, and um, my grandparents had eight children. They had uh, six daughters, and they had two sons. And each of my aunts and uncles, they uh, had a pretty good number of cousins for my brother and I that we could play with. And uh, I have some that are a good bit older than I am, and I have some that, that they've just finished college and really just starting kind of adulthood life. And uh, most of us that are older now, we, we have our own kids, so the family has just kind of exploded in growth. But as a child, I can remember one of the hallmarks of the family were these large family reunions that my grandparents would have, and they'd, they'd get all of the kids. It was, it was a goal to get all of the kids, all the grandkids and the great-grandkids, get them all together and get us there at that house uh, where they had uh, this family reunion. And they loved, they loved, absolutely loved to have us all there. Their, ha their home was small. It, it was by... Any imagination, it was a very small home. My grandfather built it himself by hand, and uh, he had bought the land that it sat on when he was like 14 years old. Uh, he was a remarkable kind of guy. Uh, for the, the family that he came out of and the, the situation he grew out of, he lost his father when he was like two years old, and they pretty much just kind of struggled to get by. And so when he was 14, he bought this piece of land, uh, and, and then when he got old enough and he was ready to get married and have his own family, he built this home. And so this two-bedroom, it was a two-bedroom home, this small home, this is where we would all gather together. And uh, we would fill that home up. It would be overflowing. It had two bedrooms and it had one bathroom. Uh, so oftentimes, especially after we'd ate, there was kind of like a line for the bathroom after people had coffee and stuff trying to, you know, get their turn at the at the commode, and um, it, it was just, it was a time, it was a big, big event for us to just crash in this small home. There was a front room, the front room, there was a living area space, and then there was a kitchen, and I can remember what they would do is they would set up all of the food pretty much in that area, and then there was an additional room they called the great room, uh, which really was not that great, it was smaller than this room we're in, uh, and they would set it up as the dining area. And my whole childhood, I can remember uh, that room being set up with folding tables as the dining room. And so that's where we would gather and we would fellowship the family in this home that was way too small for us, but then on a piece of land that was more than enough because they had a uh, considerable number of acres as a family farm. And uh, majority of the men, what I noticed, would end up 
moving kind of to the outside. We would end up outside. The men would stand and talk or they would uh, get uh, five-gallon buckets and set up and sit on the five-gallon buckets and, and just talk and have a good time. And the young men, the, uh, growing up, I only had one girl who was a cousin. Uh, the rest of us were all boys until a little bit later. We got a few more girls. But we would end up inevitably going out and throwing the football or throwing baseball. And uh, it was just a great time. And we had plenty of land to do it on. And so there was a lot of places where a, a young man could create mischief. Well, we had only one rule really on the whole entire property. I mean, you have the unwritten rules, the unspoken rules, like if you fight, you don't tell any adults, uh, those kind of rules. But the only one rule that I can remember uh, being consistently hammered into us was do not go near the big road. The big road was a Louisiana state highway that the home was located on. And I had heard so many stories in my childhood of someone being out there by the big road and being hit by a speeding car that would come around the corner because they kind of lived in a curve and the car would come around the corner and and hit them and tragedy would ensue. But I, I guarantee you this, every time that we played, almost every time, we would start out behind the home, throwing the football or throwing the baseball. And as more of my cousins would come and join in to the game, we would move to the side of the house where there was a driveway and we would play there until we eventually felt like that wasn't enough and we'd get into the front. And I noticed in my entire childhood there was this slight navigation where we would go from the back of the house all the way up to the front of the house near what the big road we would always end up near the big road and we'd be playing and we'd get closer and closer until eventually some adult would come out to the front door which was hardly ever used at my uh, grandparents home and they would stand at that big door and they would yell at the top of their lungs and they would say hey you boys get away from the big road we told you We don't want to tell you again, stay away from the big road. And so we'd move away, start the game over again, and inevitably we'd end up back by the big road. And another aunt or another uncle would come out and say, hey, y'all are getting too close to the big road. (laughs) And they'd tell us to get away from the big road. And I can imagine that if, if, if I were going there today for a family meal, at some point I would be one of the adults that would stand in the doorway and I'd yell to my son, you boys, get away from the big road. We've told you not to play near the big road. People die at the big road. We don't want to tell you again to get away from the big road. You see, as a child, we would play extremely close and we'd feel the zip of a car or a truck or a semi as it would whoosh by us and the wind would pick up and it would feel kind of nice in the Louisiana summer whenever it would come by and 
there's like an instant wind. But we didn't have a perspective that some adults had that had been there longer. They'd been a little bit wiser. Their experience had taught them something. They had a different perspective or insight than what we did as children because we didn't always understand what the big deal was. We're not stupid enough to get so close to the road we're going to get hit, but we knew we could play. It was a big open spot. But they were right in their judgment, regardless of what we could see. And I kind of think the same thing about God sometimes. God has this unique perspective. He has an experience, an insight that we do not always understand. And in His judgment, the Bible tells us that God is perfect in His judgment. It is part of His nature to be righteous. We say terms like God in His righteousness or our God is righteous. Those are phrases that we say and speak. And what the word righteous means in its lowest form, it just simply means that He is right. He's right all the time. He can't be wrong. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't make guesses even or estimation. He is just simply right. If there's knowledge of it, God knows and God has the answer and God has a perspective. And His perspective is above our perspective. His way is above our way. And in His righteousness, He is perfect. And it may be a view at this time in our life that we can never have. We may cannot see what He sees. We may think uh, that what He is saying or He is thinking uh, may not apply to us because we have this limited perspective. But in reality, God is perfect and He is perfect in His righteousness. He is perfect in His knowledge. He is perfect in His works and His law is perfect. There's a perfection there. And sometimes we can't see exactly what God sees. And it was a very freeing day in my life whenever I just determined, you know, I'm going to follow God. Sometimes it's not going to be comfortable because I'm going to sometimes think that maybe I should know better because I'm on the ground floor and I'm seeing what's happening right here. But really, whenever I surrender to God and I say, God, you're in control, that's whenever God can help navigate me through the challenges that life brings because He is right in every one of His decisions. The Bible talks about Him having perfect knowledge, Job 36 and 4, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. He has perfect knowledge. He's perfect in His works. Deuteronomy 32 and 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. It even says that His law is perfect. Psalm 19 and 7. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord is perfect. (coughs) Now, I don't know how deeply you've studied the Word of God or read into it, but I can tell you 
there are some head scratchers in there. There are some head scratching laws that God decided to give his people when he gave them a law. Laws like this, if you don't celebrate one of the national holidays, it would result in being excommunicated from the entire nation. Could you imagine, like, one day you decide, well, I'm not going to celebrate July 4th because I need to work. I've got a little little extra stuff I've got to do. And the nation says, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to kick you out. You don't love freedom. So we're going to kick you out. Get excommunicated from the nation. It's kind of a head scratcher. Another one was if you're going to kill and eat a goat, you can kill and eat that goat, but you cannot cook it in its mother's milk. Now, God, tell me how in the world that that's any kinder to the goat that you're going to eat. But it was a law. Another one was if rebellious teenagers, of which most of us all were at some point, they could be stoned by the people of the city or town where they lived. It's kind of a head-scratcher. A number of other laws they would be written would cause us to pause and cause us to ask, what? Why, God? What do you mean? But God's law was perfect. There was no questioning God's law. And the judgment and execution of punishment for the laws that were broken, even whenever it seemed harsh and it seemed unreal, uh, that it could happen that way, the Bible says that it was perfect. Because why? Because it came from God. He is righteous. There's no way He can be wrong. You and I, we can be wrong. We can make mistakes. My wife, whenever... She wants me to hang a picture, and I'll tell her, you measure it. The joke is that I'm going to have to remeasure it because we've had a few mirrors and stuff where I went to put it right where she wanted it, and the, the holes didn't line up. They were off a little bit. And so I've learned to remeasure. Now, we can make an estimation and be wrong. God cannot be wrong. God is perfect. And His law is Perfect, But there's something that comes in conflict with God's perfection and His law. And that is what we call the nature of sin. Humanity has this nature of sin. Just like I talked about as a child, we would constantly get closer and closer to the big road. You think about humanity. We kind of like to get as close to as we can to consistently breaking the law. Why? Because we have a nature of sin within us, and the nature of sin is this. It is to rebel against God and His authority and His law. How many of us in here, we regularly drive 5 to 10 miles over the speed limit? Yeah. Every one of us, even the ones who wouldn't admit it. Why? Well, I can push the agenda just slightly. I know, well, maybe they're going to give me, you know, seven miles grace period, right? I can get seven extra miles in there before they really ding me. We want to be as close 
as we possibly can. Have you ever considered this? Genesis chapter 3 talks about the Garden of Eden and you have Adam and Eve there and the serpent comes to Eve subtly and starts to influence her to eat of the the tree of forbidden fruit, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he succeeds in influencing her. But have you ever considered, why was it that Eve had the entire garden that she could have been in, but she happened to be within reach of the tree that was forbidden to her? She could have been anywhere else. But she was right there. It's within our nature. It's this sin nature. We want to live as close to what we're not supposed to have as we can. But here's the problem, and I I want you to understand and listen to this today. What we entertain, we fall prey to. So whatever sin in your life that you're entertaining or you're living close to, ultimately, in the end, we end up falling prey to that sin. The thing that we entertain, the thing that we're close to, we end up falling prey to. And the conflict comes in this. When there's a broken law with God's law, there has to be judgment because God's nature is perfect. His righteousness is perfect. His decisions that He determined a long time ago that that sin would be judged and the judgment for that sin would be death and it would be cutting, being cut off for all of eternity. That decision, when made, was perfect and it was right. His righteousness in judgment when faced with sin is always right and it always requires satisfaction. It always requires satisfaction. Sin can never be passed over by God. It must be satisfied with judgment. And that judgment, I'm going to show you in Scripture, has always been by blood. It's been by the life that would be sacrificed. A life was required to satisfy the brokenness of the law when judgment came in contact with that sin. Genesis 3.21, we were talking about Adam and Eve. It tells us that for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now all theologians agree this is the first ever blood sacrifice that covered sin in humanity. It's the first time that an animal paid the price for what a human for what humanity had done. Because in that moment God was supposed to strike them dead, supposed to kill them. Instead, what he did is he cursed the ground and he he cursed the world and in its place he took the skins of an animal and he ripped them from an animal and he clothed the naked bodies of Adam and Eve. And it was the blood and the flesh that played provision for the sin of Adam and Eve. The blood and the life of that animal satisfied temporarily the judgment of God. And you see this example played out all throughout Scripture. If we go to the book of Exodus in the Passover, it is the same exact thing. There has to be blood to satisfy for the sin and for judgment of the world. 
Exodus 12, 6 through 7, God told them this. He said, now you shall keep it until the 14th day. He's talking about a lamb, a goat, a lamb. Keep it till the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses where they eat. At the Passover, which was historically just a time celebrated, <coughs> God was going to come and He was going to judge Egypt. And in His judging of Egypt, He would be delivering Israel from bondage in Egypt. But the only way that He could pass over and not judge Israel for the same sins as what he was going to judge Egypt for, there would have to be a substitution. The substitution was going to be found in the lamb and in the goat. And so Exodus 12, 11 through 12 tells us, And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will, what's he doing? Execute judgment. He's going to pass over, and he's going to execute judgment. He says, I'm going to pass through. Thank you. I'm going to pass through, and I'm going to execute judgment. But here's the thing. God cannot pass over sin. He can't ignore sin. He must judge all with judgment. And that's why the Bible talks about judgment beginning at the house of the Lord. You and I are not going to escape judgment. The only difference is we're going to have blood applied to our life. The sin that we had will be remembered no more. It will not, there will be nothing there to accuse us of because the sin will be reconciled. So he cannot pass over sin without satisfying sin with judgment. And the judgment is this. It's blood and life. Blood and life. Exodus 12 and 13 tells us what he's going to do to satisfy that judgment. It says now the blood, the blood that was on the signpost, the doorpost, says the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. You've done what you're supposed to do. You sacrificed the lamb. You ate it. You consumed it. You applied the blood to the doorpost. I'm going to pass over that and you will not be judged. I will pass over you. The plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, the lamb became the substitution for the sin of Israel. But the blood had to be applied to the doorpost. The lamb had to be consumed. There could be nothing left. But if there were no blood and no lamb, there would be judgment. All throughout Scripture, we see God giving provision for sin as a substitution with the animal sacrifice. In the tabernacle, God designed a way of approaching Him. He started with an altar. At the altar, there would be a sacrifice. 
On the Day of Atonement every year, they would take a special sacrifice, a bull, and they would put it on that altar of atonement, and they would let the blood flow over that altar. And then the priest would take and he would wash himself in a wash basin that's called a laver. And in that laver, he would have to cleanse himself of all of the blood and the guts and the filth of the flesh and all unrighteousness before God. That was the process. If he did not cleanse himself, he would not be accepted. He'd be struck dead immediately upon entering into the tabernacle. So he would go to the altar. They would sacrifice the animal blood running over that altar. The wash basin or lava of water, the priest would wash himself. And then he would go into the holy place, what was called the the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was there. Now this was the covenant between man and God. And it was in that covenant that God held the law and Aaron's budded rod and pots of manna. And on top of that covenant, there was a mercy seat. And between, on either side of that mercy seat, there were cherubs, angel representations. And in the middle of that mercy seat, just above it, was, was, that was the place where the Spirit of God was supposed to dwell. And it hovered there. And every time the Day of Atonement would come, it came that one time a year where the priest would have to go in and he would have to go into that holy place and he would go in carrying blood and he He was to sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. And if he did not sprinkle that blood, judgment would hit the people. We find the description in Leviticus 16, 14. says, He shall take some blood of the bull, sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side before the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Because here's the issue. If there's no blood... There's no satisfaction for the judgment of God. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no remission. So above the mercy seat, where the Spirit of the Lord dwelt, between two angel cherubs, inside the ark, there was that law, Moses had received the law from God on Mount Sinai. And Aaron's budded rod was in there and a pot of manna. And all of these things represent something to us. The law represents the broken law that Israel had broke. The covenant broken between Israel and God. The budded rod was a sign from God of God's authority. God used a special event of the budded rod to show the Levites would be the authority and speak on behalf of God. And the people rejected that authority. They didn't want the authority of God in their life. And so there in that Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's budded rod, a sign of God's authority. And then in there was the pot of manna, God's provision. Manna was that that special food that fell from heaven that was God's provision to get them through the wilderness. But even whenever they were receiving manna from heaven... People were complaining and moaning and bemoaning the fact that they had to eat the same thing every day, even though every day was an experience of a miracle with God. And so whenever the Spirit of God looked down over that mercy seat and saw a broken law and saw a rejected authority and saw 
complaints over God's provision. It could do nothing but incense the wrath and judgment of God at the sinfulness of man. And so when that priest would go in and he would take that atoning blood and sprinkle onto the altar in that one moment in that mercy seat, God could not see past the blood. All he could see was that a sacrifice had been made. The blood had been shed and there was nothing beyond that blood that concerned him. He only saw the blood. And so the broken law, it didn't matter. The Aaron's butted rod, the rejection of authority, it didn't matter any longer. The, the, the complaining of the people at God's provision, all of those things did not matter any longer because there was blood that was shed. There was blood on the mercy seat that would satisfy the judgment of God. Because without blood, there's no purification. There's no remission. There's no satisfaction. Let's get honest. We break God's law. We reject God's authority when God provides some provision sometimes we complain that it wasn't in time or it wasn't right or it wasn't sufficient or it didn't come the way that I had hoped it would come maybe it came even at my own suffering a little bit and we complain God looks down and he sees a broken law He sees a rejected authority. He sees complaint at provision. But when there's blood, that perfect judgment, that perfect wrath, that perfect anger, all it can see is satisfaction. And the price of satisfaction was this. The cross of Christ. It was not about a turning point in history. It was not just about God manifesting Himself in flesh and coming on our behalf. It was about one thing. It was about satisfying judgment that is inevitable. Hebrews says it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. Every one of us will experience the same thing. We will experience death. We'll experience judgment. It's going to happen. The blood of Calvary was only about satisfying judgment. Hebrews 10, 14, 16 says, For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days says the Lord I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them he said I'm going to make a new covenant no longer will sin be atoned by the blood of animal sacrifices that happen one time a year but now 
That sin will be satisfied by one sacrifice on the cross at Calvary made through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's the only satisfaction for perfect judgment. Animals couldn't do it. No other offering could do it. Only the blood of a perfect lamb. God manifest in flesh. Going to Calvary. Paying the price. Putting on sin. This is a thing. He was not perfect on that cross. He put on your sin and my sin. He wore it to the cross. And He suffered excruciating pain. Because judgment demanded that there be that price of penalty to be paid. So the question, the ultimate question for everyone in this life is always going to be, have you had the blood of Calvary applied to your life? Have you had the blood of Calvary applied to your life? 1 John 5, 6 through 8 tells us this, says this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. Without blood. Without blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit. These three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, the blood. These three agree as one. How do you apply the blood to your life? It starts in repentance. Repentance is dying out to ourself. Repentance is simple. It's, it's I'm walking one direction and I change that direction. Military, they say repent. It's just 180, turn around. Repentance is more than just saying, God, I believe. It's more than just saying, God, I have faith. It's more than just saying, God, forgive me. It is repenting your life. It's turning away from the sin that so easily entraps and snares us and striving with everything inside of us not to fall prey to it. That's repentance. Repentance is a picture of the altar. The altar was a place that the bull died, blood was shed. It's putting your life on the altar, saying, God, I don't want this life. I want the life you have. It's dying to the flesh. And then it's washing in the only washing God offers, washing of sins in the baptism of Jesus' name. It's a picture of the lava, the wash wash basin. The priest would have to go and he'd have to wash the dead animal off of his hands. He'd have to cleanse himself from that filthiness. We have to be cleansed of our filthiness. And then the promise is that we'd be filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Acts chapter 2. And this is our guarantee. It's going into that holy place. Having a relationship with God that's unlike any other relationship. 
It's not just believing. It's not just faith. It, it's, it's communion, deep communion with God. And it's our guarantee. The Bible says it's our seal. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, 22. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. That is absolutely the worst. I made a mistake. That is not the right scripture. The worst thing can happen to a guy on Easter Sunday. Scripture talks about it's our seal, it's our guarantee. What does that mean? It means God stamps his seal on us. The seal was the thing that people in the market would use. They'd go and they'd buy a commodity like seeds or grain. And they had a big seal that they would plant into that stack of grain. So that anytime anybody walked by, they would see the seal, they'd know that's been purchased and paid for. They're coming back to get it. The Spirit of God is our seal. God puts a stamp on us and he says, I'm coming back. When I return, I've already paid the price. I'm going to be collecting what I paid and bought. We have to have the blood applied because the blood was the thing that paid the price. It's the blood. It's the blood. It's the blood. God looks at you. He looks at your life. He's going to see one of two things. He's going to see a law broken or he's going to see a rejection of authority or he's going to see a complaint of provision or he's going to see blood. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ? That every one of us, we have opportunity to have the blood applied and have judgment satisfied. If you'll stand with me. Price of satisfaction was blood at Calvary. That was the price of satisfaction. The original author of the songs, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, was not the Rolling Stones. It was God looking at the law and saying animals won't do it. Humanity can't do it. No one else can do it. The only satisfaction is the blood at Calvary. We worship the Lord together for just a moment. God, I thank you for your blood. Thank you for your sacrifice. God, when I break your laws and when I let you down, when I complain about your provision, when I reject your authority in my life, there's blood at Calvary that can be applied. You won't see my sinfulness. You won't see my shame. 
instead you'll see the only atoning sacrificial lamb blood shed for my salvation God I thank you for the blood I thank you for the blood I thank you for the blood whatever shape your life is in today want you to know that God loved you enough that he wouldn't just leave a broken law and he wouldn't just leave a rejected authority in place and he wouldn't just leave signs and wonders that we turn away from but he provided ultimately for the judgment that he would have to make call and he said I love them enough I love him enough I love her enough I love them right where they are right now, broken law, sins, everything, that I'll die for them. I'll shed blood on Calvary and pay the price of satisfaction. Can we worship the Lord together?